Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where the history community takes their rightful place on the throne, whatever it takes. The podcast where myth and misconception is quietly smothered and disposed of. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am joined, as ever, by my loyal co-host and good man of the Duke of Buckingham, Kyle Glover. Hello everyone, it's come to this, the one we're all waiting for. Yes, yeah. so yes, precisely. Yeah. This week, dear ragers, we are taking on a debate of over 500 years, one of the most divisive subjects that we've faced even now. As joining us today, we welcome historian, chair of the Richard III Society, host of History Hits Gone Medieval podcast, and author of The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, Matt Lewis. Matt, a nervous welcome to History Rage. I am not nervous at all. I am pumped. Yeah. I am ready. I've got my gum guard in. Yeah, it's going to be great. Fine, then. Okay, you might not be nervous. We absolutely <laughs> terrified. I, I don't know what all this we is for. Okay. Name, let's, let's, let's see if we can break your social media yeah, account. It's your name on the website and your address on all the uh, paperwork. So, uh, yeah, come, come at us, bros. Come at <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> right, yes, Henry the Seventh stands. Um, okay, so uh, we both saw your presentation on Henry and Eleanor uh, at Chalk Valley and mm. thoroughly enjoyed it. And you've been in medieval history for, for quite some time now. But before we dive into a 500-year-old mystery, could you settle a much more recent mystery, which is basically your history and how you got into this subject that's brought you to the pinnacle of your career that is being here? Absolutely. I mean, how did I arrive here today? It's incredible. And it is to me, it's a little bit of a mystery. If I'm perfectly honest, I I'm going to rubbish all of my credentials before I even start here by saying I didn't even do history at university. I did my degree in law, never practiced law, never got into it, found it boring and terrible, and didn't want to do it. But history has just always been a fascination. It, it's always been an interest since I was at school. I did Wars of the Roses for A level, and it just stuck in my head. I had the most brilliant teacher at A level history, Miss Merricks. Uh, and my obsession with history is entirely her fault. So um, anyone who's annoyed by anything I ever say, take it up with Sarah Merrick, if you can find her. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, it was just just an interest. But I, I always say that I think doing a law degree teaches you an awful lot of the same skills as history. It's all about finding evidence. It's about building a story. It's about creating a narrative and then trying to make your case you know, in the face of, of opposition or, or persuading people that what you're saying is right. So I think there's lo- loads of transferable skills there that you can carry across from a law degree. Mm. But history, and particularly the Wars of the Roses, just sort of stopped with me ever since then. I, I got fascinated by Richard III. I actually started off, I wrote a historical fiction novel about Richard III. I was convinced it was rubbish. People were telling me to send it to a publisher, and I was like, no, it's rubbish. A, a few people read it and they were like, oh, it's really good. You should send it off to a publisher. I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll self-publish it to Amazon to show them that it's it's absolute drivel. <laughs> so I self-published it and I, I was simultaneously smug and utterly crushed that it sold about six copies in the first six months that it was on there. Clearly, it wasn't very good. And then the very kind Philippa Langley found Richard III's remains under a car park about six months after I'd released the book. And it was like the most amazing publicity <laughs> campaign you could have ever had and the book suddenly started to sell copies i wrote a sequel to it i started writing a blog because when all the stuff around richard iii's remains being found came out there was so much drivel in the news so much just wrong incorrect stuff that was yeah. demonstrably against the source material i just started to blog about some of the stuff that we know about richard iii you know, trying to correct some of those things that were out there a little bit a publisher got in touch with me through my website and said, we, you know, we really like the way you write. Would you like to write a book for us? I fell on the floor, picked myself up, pinched myself. Apparently it was real. That My, my first book was History of the Wars of the Roses. And it's just kind of snowballed from there. So in lockdown, I did a couple of live streams with Dan Snow. And then History Hit got in touch and asked if I'd like to do a film at the Tower of London about the princes in the tower. I fell down again. I think at this point I need to start strapping pillows to myself. (laughs) But I fell down again, picked myself up. And it was in lockdown. So we went and did a film. In one day we did a film on the princes in the tower and one on people who've escaped from the Tower of London. Uh, And it was closed to the public. So it was literally us and a few beef eaters milling around. It was the most surreal and amazing experience I've ever had. And I thought, well, you know, that was incredible. That's probably it. A few weeks after that, they got in touch and said, we're starting this medieval podcast. Would you like to be one of the hosts on it? And it was like, I'd strapped pillows to myself by this point, and I was fine. Said yes. And then I they asked me if I wanted a job as kind of senior presenter, doing films for them as well as the podcast, you know, write bits of editorial stuff as well. And and that's where I am today. And now I get invited on things like History Rage. Mm, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, pinnacle of your career. <laughs> well, well, welcome to it. Welcome to it. Because, you know, we we were on the other side of that. We were like, oh, my God, Matt Lewis has said oh yes. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. I mean, uh, do not do, do not doubt your popularity. Um, okay, so History Rage is all about that one question, which is bubbling away not only under you, but under the rest of the Richard Third Society as well. So you probably come with an army. So... With all the motion, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, Matt, would you tell our mob of history ragers out there the one thing you wish people would just stop believing? All right, I'm go- I am going to stop myself at the point that I might turn green, um, but I simply wish, particularly traditional historians, 
would just stop saying that they know Richard III killed the princes in the tower. You do not know that. You cannot know that. I don't say he definitely didn't. There is room in this for nuance. But so many people are utterly convinced that they're right in this, that it absolutely does my head in. And nowhere is that better demonstrated than the fairly recent social media storm about historic royal palaces tweaking their signage at the Tower of London to say there's no proof that the princes were killed. And the the crazy reaction to that, you know, people call Ricardians emotional uh, and overreactive and everything else. You see what traditional historians have said about those historic royal palaces signs and how disgusting it is and how historic royal palaces should be ashamed of themselves. It's it's a joke. Well done. <laughs> yeah. A standing ovation from Mr. Glover. That is that is absolutely spot. For reference, this is the Tower of London when this has been recorded, so mid-July 2023, changing the sign in the Richard III room to say there's no evidence that there's no actual evidence either way of what happened to the two princes. That's the gist of it. Yeah. That's it. I mean it's as simple as that. Yep. They don't say he didn't do it. You know, they yeah. don't say he's innocent. They don't say the boys survived. They simply say there is not sufficient evidence to be certain what happened to mm. the princes in the tower. And if that's not just a fact, <laughs> then I don't know what a fact yeah. is. But it's caused so much outrage. It's it's. I don't know whether I'm really annoyed or highly amused. I, I remember reading one, and uh, I won't name the historian, but anybody that came to History Rage Live at Sean Valley will have heard me accidentally slip that name out. Uh, and, uh, but, but that book said, well, evidence, uh, evidence suggests that Richard was in this place at this time, but if he was there, he couldn't have killed the princes in the tower. So that evidence is wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of, you know, people say that Ricardians like to make things up and stretch evidence and things like that. But, you know, how is that not just stretching the evidence? Anything that disagrees with me is wrong. <laughs> this person 500 years ago was wrong because they say the, the, a thing that I can't agree with. So. For those of us very much that are not of a medieval bent then and have been living under a rock for the past 500 years next to a deceased king, you know, let's have a little bit of a kind of potted history of the princes in the Mm -hmm. tower. And what is the prevailing historical narrative regarding their fate? And why is this theory so widely accepted? So, I mean, the, the princes in the tower are, there's Edward V and there's Richard, Duke of York. Edward V, when his father dies, so his father, Edward IV, is the first of the Yorkist kings in the Wars of the Roses, comes to the throne in 1461, is booted off for a bit in 1470 to 71, comes back and reigns until he dies in 1483. When he dies, his son, Edward V, is proclaimed as king, but he's 12 years old. So minority kingships always create some kind of problem. Nobody really wants a child on the throne. Yeah, It creates something of a power vacuum, and you, you suddenly get you know, the the sharks are circling because there's blood in the water. Well, in fact, haven't we just had a 30-year war on that very basis? Exactly that. You know, Henry VI coming to the throne as a nine-month-old baby stored up problems, which by the 1450s exploded into the Wars of the Roses. And we've, I think people living through those times would have felt like we've just got to the end of that and, crikey, we've got another 12-year-old on the throne now what does this mean and not just a 12 year old but a 12 year old who is essentially in the sway of his mother's family so the the woodville family as they're known the woodville faction um there's their there's their mother there's their uncle anthony they have two half brothers lots of aunts floating around as well married to all sorts of important people and there is 
a, a dislike for the Woodville faction. Mm. They're seen by quite a lot of people as upstarts who have come in and and hoovered up the marriage market under Edward the Fourth. And there is lots of concern that they may now seek to to get the reins of power for themselves through Edward V. And if anything, Richard, the future Richard III, who at this point is Richard, Duke of Gloucester, is not necessarily at the centre of this. So a, a man named Lord Hastings is the one who has a real problem with the Woodfills. So there's loads of trouble in London. To cut a long story short, Richard is is installed as Lord Protector of the Realm. So he's he's given responsibility for the security of the kingdom, comes down to London. We get all sorts of stuff going on, which is is highly controversial still. But essentially, the, the legal kind of factual situation is that some evidence emerges, is examined in London, which says that Edward IV committed bigamy. So his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville is bigamous. All of the children of that marriage are therefore illegitimate, and illegitimacy is an absolute bar to the throne at this point. Children of noblemen and things like that, you can maybe get round illegitimacy, but absolutely not in the case of the throne. So they are declared unable to to accede to the throne and are placed out of the line of succession. The only other person potentially in the line is Edward Earl of Warwick, who is a nephew of Edward IV and Richard III. And his father was executed in 1478 for treason and part of the attainder, so the, the conviction in Parliament, specifically barred him and all of his children, all of his bloodline, all of his descendants from the line of succession. So Edward IV's children are barred. George Duke of Clarence's children are barred. The next person in the line of succession is Richard. And you get this situation in which he is asked to take the throne. And 24 hours later, he accepts, becomes King Richard III. Now, the, the controversy is around how true that bigamy story is. That's, you know, that's the factual situation. That's what legally happened. But there is lots of suggestion that Richard created the bigamy story as a way to get himself onto the throne, to sort of move people out of the way so that he could be king. I'd suggest there's more evidence of the bigamy than of Richard making up the story, but you know that'll probably get social media going, even just saying that. And so then you get a situation where Richard III becomes king. He's crowned on the 6th of July, 1483. The princes are at this point in the tower, as their name suggests, in the Tower of London. Edward V was installed there in preparation for his coronation. There is nothing sinister in that. That's where medieval monarchs go to prepare for their coronations. Uh, Richard, Duke of York, comes out of sanctuary to join him. And again, people often say that this is because Richard was threatening to to breach sanctuary, to burst in there and steal this boy. What actually happened is the Archbishop of Canterbury goes in and says to Elizabeth Woodville, place your son in my care and I'll make sure he's looked after. She does so. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury never kind of feels the need to apologise to anybody because he didn't do a good job of looking after Richard, Duke of York. Make of that what you will. So then the princes throughout that summer, there is a a record in the Great Chronicle of London that says they began to be seen less and less. They were seen shooting arrows in the the gardens of the Tower of London at various times, but they start to be seen less and less until by the end of the summer, which most it's not dated, but most people normally put around September 1483, they stop being seen at all. And from that, people have extrapolated that Richard III murdered them and that they're dead by this point. And I think that story has taken hold simply because throughout the 16th century, it starts really with Thomas More's famous narrative. You know, he he tells a very colourful and exciting story, even involving Richard III sitting on the toilet while he's deciding to murder his nephews. 
he tells the story of the murder in great detail in a, in a version of history that I think is not what we would understand as history. He's writing allegory. He's talking about the dangers of tyranny. He's not writing factual history. But nevertheless, it gets accepted as that. And then throughout the 16th century, people rewrite chronicles. They republish books. And I think every time you publish a book, you have to you have to make a story a little bit dirtier, a little bit nastier. You have to add another scandal in there to sell your book. Otherwise, why would anyone buy it? And obviously, Richard's story reaches a pinnacle throughout the, the 16th century at Shakespeare in the 1590s. You know, Shakespeare writes this demonic figure on stage, the, the ultimate anti-hero in a play. But it, it's, I mean, it's interesting for several reasons. It's called The Tragedy of King Richard III. It's a tragedy, but it gets put in with the histories. So Shakespeare never meant it to be a history play. He meant it to be a tragedy. Even if it was a history play, Shakespeare doesn't write factual history. I mean, in his version of The Wars of the Roses, he has Richard III's first kill taking place at the First Battle of St. Albans in 1455, when Richard III is two and a half years old. Mm -hmm. So unless you believe that he's some kind of He's some kind of Bam Bam figure from the Flintstones that he's charging around in a nappy with a massive club, beating the Duke of Somerset to death. It's just demonstrably not true. And and it's one of the few plays by Shakespeare as well, where there is zero character development. Richard starts off as an evil monster and he ends it as an evil monster. There is no redemption. There is no you know moment of realisation. There is absolutely no development in any of the characters in that play. And that's really odd among Shakespearean plays as well. Um, so there are lots of reasons why it's it's a hard play to watch as a Ricardian. I actually love it as an examination of an anti-hero on stage. And I think it talks to an audience a lot because this guy comes on stage, he tells you a few jokes, and then he says, now I'm going to kill my brother. And you go, okay, then, because he tells you a few more do- jokes. And then he says, now I'm going to kill my wife. And you let him, you know, you just watch while he does this. And he tells you a few, few more jokes. And then he says, just going to have my nephews killed and I'll be back. And you find yourself watching this play, laughing along with his jokes and almost hoping that he succeeds. You like him, even though he's telling you, I'm murdering my brother, I'm murdering my wife, I'm murdering some children, I'm going to get all these people killed to make myself king. You're almost on his side. And I think that's the cleverness of of what Shakespeare does with that play. And I think it talks more about who the audience are. You know, you're watching this happen and you're just accepting it. No one jumps up and stops him and says, don't kill those children. Um, and, and there's an argument, I think, to be to be made for that being a piece of contemporary Shakespearean political satire around the succession after Ed, after Elizabeth I dies. You know, she's going to die airless. Who's going to take over? And we know that the Cecils, so William Cecil and his son Robert, are plotting the Stuart succession of the, the Protestant Stuart kings of Scotland. And so if if Shakespeare was, as lots of people think, a recalcitrant Catholic, and we know lots of his patrons were Catholics, is he talking about watching someone create this Stuart succession, steal the crown for the new religion in place of returning it to the old religion? And one of the the most interesting things, perhaps, is that we know Robert Cecil, who was at the heart of this, was documented as having kyphosis. So that forward curvature of the spine that Shakespeare calls a bunchback and quite often gets called a hunchback. We know Robert Cecil had that. So I think an Elizabethan audience in the 1590s watching that play, when that character hobbles on stage, 
they would have been elbowing each other saying, oh, I think it's Robert Cecil. I think they would have known that. And we've just lost that because we've lost the context mm. of the play. That was a really long answer to a question. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I fully agree. Richard III, in the, in the play, Richard III, Richard III is the best thing in it by a country mile. Just to take like Kyle's point and your point there as well. Shakespeare does have a tendency to make you like things that you really shouldn't. I mean, I one of my favourite plays in it is Romeo and Juliet, which, if you actually boil that down to its root, is a teenage relationship that results in six deaths over three weeks. That's not something to be celebrated at all. No, and yet it's held up as the ideal love story. But how is it an ideal <laughs> love story in which the you know there's mass suicides, yeah. you know, stabbings yeah. and all of that Gang kind of thing? Warfare. If you saw that on the news, you wouldn't think, oh, that's <laughs> Just to continue, I can recite quite a lot of Richard III's lines from Richard III, but I could not tell you a single line of Richmond's, Henry VII's dialogue from the entire play. But I digress. Um, so... What um what are the actual sources and historical documentation that challenge this narrative? What proof is there that goes against the um, mainstream narrative that Richard was the uh, the baddie? Unfortunately, not enough, but probably more than most people would hmm. think there is. Um, and this is why I say that it remains a mystery. You know, I don't ever claim to have solved this. I have my own theories on it, and I I wrote the book, The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, to be a collection of all of these different theories and some of them contradict each other you know if if one of those theories is true it means another one can't be um so it was never meant to be this is definitively what happened i i read a lot about the wars of the roses richard the third the princes in the tower over the years and invariably books would say and then richard the third murdered his nephews mm-hmm. with an occasional sort of side note that maybe buckingham did it there are you know there are some ideas they survived but obviously they didn't And I could never find a book that kind of told me what all of those theories were to allow me to examine those and see whether they made sense. So I couldn't find the book, so I got to write it, which is brilliant. And in trying to find it, I think I kind of separate the evidence into two different sorts. There is human evidence of the ways that people behave, which I think is really important and really compelling. But there is documentary evidence that directly contradicts the the, the traditional accepted view of these events. And this is where, you know, agreeing with you, Paul, you get people will say, but that must just be wrong. <laughs> we'll just ignore that because it doesn't follow the traditional narrative, so it must be wrong. And so one of the most interesting of these, partly because it's one of the earliest, it's written in the mid-1490s, it's also written by someone who is around during these events. He's at the court of Henry VII. And this is Bernard André. So he is uh, a poet laureate at Henry Tudor's, Henry VII's court. He's there in 1487 when the the Lambert-Simnel affair kicks off. And when he writes his history of Henry VII, I mean, he loves Henry VII. Absolutely no doubt about it. He's 100% in the Henry VII camp. But when he writes his account of the Lambert-Simnel affair in 1487, he talks on at least three different occasions about the boy in Ireland claiming to be a son of Edward IV. History tells us that the Lambert Simnel affair is about the Earl of Warwick that we mentioned earlier, that that son of George, Duke of Clarence, who is barred from the line of succession. So he's a prisoner in the Tower of London, and he's a 12-year-old boy at this time. 
But Bernard Andre, it, it's almost like you know this official version of the Lambert Simlal affair emerges that it was a plot in favour of the Earl of Warwick. That it was a boy from Oxford called Lambert Simnel who was an imposter. It's almost like Andre didn't get the memo because he writes this mm-hmm. history in which he says the boy in Ireland claimed to be the son of Edward the Fourth, and if he's called Edward and he's the son of Edward the Fourth, that means he's Edward the Fifth. And he repeats this, so it's not that he makes a mistake once; he says it again later on. And then at the end of it, when he talks about the the preparations for the Battle of Stoke Field, he says that so many people, so many prudent men were convinced that this boy was the son of Edward IV, that they didn't hesitate to die for him in battle. People literally march into battle in the belief that this is a son of Edward IV. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that is a, a Tudor source written very close to the time by an eyewitness who tells us, that the Lambert Simlal affair was about the belief that one of the princes in the tower was still alive in 1487. But yeah. people will say Andre's just got it wrong. But you can you can go into things like Polydor Virgil. So another Tudor-sponsored court historian. This is a guy that Henry VII brings over in the early 16th century to write his history of the kings of England. And in his Latin, when he talks about the Lambert Simlal affair, Polydor Virgil says that it's a, he uses the Latin word restituendum so that it's an effort to restore edward to the throne of england but if it's edward earl of warwick you can't restore him to the throne because he's never been king Mm. the only Mm. edward that you can restore to a throne in 1487 is edward v if he's still alive and it's just odd little bits like that so you get um a source called the book of house which is a, a less reliable source this is compiled a lot later it's an irish source and there is lots of doubt cast over the, the veracity of some of what the Book of House says. So we do have to be careful with this one. But nevertheless, it says all of the Irish lords are, are dragged over to England to have their wrists slapped in the aftermath of the Lambert Simnel affair because they've all supported it. And the boy Lambert Simnel is paraded in front of them. And, and Henry VII makes this remark that, you know, you lords of Ireland will crown apes at length. You know, he's sort of saying you'll put a crown on anybody's head. You know, you, you watch this boy from Oxford being crowned in Dublin. And all of these Irish lords that were at that coronation sit there and swear blind. They swear an oath that that isn't the boy they saw being crowned in Ireland. So this Lambert Simnel isn't the boy that they saw in Ireland. He's come from nowhere. And it's almost like I think there are smoke and mirrors you know, to some extent, I think Henry VII manages to use what annoys historians of the Wars of the Roses today, that everyone is called Henry, Richard or Edward. Yeah. So they say, we, we've got a rebellion in Ireland in the name of Edward. We've got an Edward in prison over here, so we can make it all look like a joke if we say that rebellion in Ireland is in favour of the Edward that's a prisoner. And then they get this kind of fake boy, parade him around after. But the Book of House says, the Irish Lord said, that isn't the boy they saw being crowned in Ireland. Yeah, and and even a bit later. So I'm still on the Lambert Simnel affair, I'm afraid. But in 1526, there is an entry in Henry VIII's calendar of state papers in which there's a bit of trouble going on in Ireland, and he's obviously asked for like a you know one pager to explain Ireland to him because he obviously can't bother to work it out for himself. And so this this report comes back that says you know Ireland is. It's a lot like England in the Wars of the Roses. You've got the split between the Geraldines and the Butlers, who sort of come from the same family, but vie with each other for control of Ireland. And it says, you know, Ireland has always been loyal to the House of York during the Wars of the Roses, as was seen in the time of the King's father, so Henry VII, when a boy named Lambert Simnel was proclaimed to be the son of King Edward. 
1526, someone is putting a piece of paper in front of Henry the Henry the Eighth that says the Lambert Simnel affair was about one of the princes in the tower. Mm-hmm. So, how do people believe without a doubt that they're dead when, for years afterwards, we see this series of events in which just the first uprising against the Tudors is is cited as being in the name of a son of Edward the Fourth. And then I think you can get into the 1490s and talk about Perkin Warbeck. Well, and before for me, I dive into Perkin, yeah. Perkin Warbeck, yeah. um, from what I know of Edward IV, he could have quite a lot of sons. Absolutely. He, d- he didn't keep it to himself, did he? No. Yeah. Um, but as I mentioned before, you know, if we're talking about illegitimate children, they yeah. wouldn't have yeah. been able to succeed to the, the yeah. throne. And, it's- you know, people wouldn't necessarily have wanted to put an illegitimate kid on the throne. That, had what, that was what had barred Edward V in 1483. Yeah. So they wouldn't necessarily think that that getting another illegitimate son of Edward the Fourth was any better. Yeah, it's the two it's the two yeah. princes okay. that are the key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. and and there are other there are other Yorkist heirs around. So there is Warwick. Hmm. He is barred legally from the line of succession, but you could undo that in Parliament if you really wanted to. But there are also people like so. This is where I talk about the human evidence a little bit. John de la Pole, the Earl of Lincoln. This is a guy who he's in his twenties. Nobody doubts who he is. So already he's got two things over this boy in Ireland. He's a grown man and everyone has no doubt over who he is. He is considered the heir presumptive to Richard III after Richard III's son dies. So he has the senior Yorkist claim to the throne in 1485 and onwards. He joins the Lambert Simler affair. He dies at the Battle of Stoke Field. He watches this boy get crowned in Dublin and then goes and fights for him and dies to try and win him the throne. Why would John de la Pole do that for a 10-year-old boy from Oxford? Why would he do it for his cousin, the Earl of Warwick, who is barred from the line of succession and a prisoner in the tower? Why wouldn't he say, hang on, I'm the Yorkist heir. Follow me. I'm a 20-year-old man. I've been trained for this all my life. You know who I am. Mm. Why don't you follow me? What makes him set aside his own perfectly good claim? What makes everybody else not look to him, but look to this boy in Ireland? And I think the answer lies in the fact that the, there are two people potentially with better claims to the throne than John de la Pole in 1487. And that's the princes in the tower who have now been re-legitimized by Henry VII so that he can marry their sister. And, the, and one final thing on that is, is that the timing is interesting as well. So 1487, a couple of years into Henry VII's reign, we're told the 10-year-old boy, Lambert Simnel, pretends to be the 12-year-old Earl of Warwick to get the throne. Who wants a 10-year-old king who's a boy from Oxford? Who wants a 12-year-old king, more to the point, you know, that causes problems, as we discussed? By this point, Edward V is 16 and a half years old. Sounds young to us. It's exactly the same age as the Black Prince was at the Battle of Cressy. It's exactly the same age as Henry V was at the Battle of Shrewsbury. It's barely a year younger than his dad when he started his military career as as an undefeated warrior on the battlefields of the Wars of the Roses. So if you're in Ireland thinking, I want to rebel against Henry VII, are you going to follow a 10-year-old boy? Are you going to follow a 12-year-old boy? Or are you going to follow the 16-and-a-half-year-old son of the greatest warrior king in living memory? I think there's only one of those people that you would follow. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so Perkin Warbeck, bring <laughs> yeah. in the sequel. I mean, that you know, that's the other big one. And I think to some extent, you can look at what happens with the, the Lambert Simnel affair, that it gets written off as this imposter with a slightly odd name, who's a boy from nowhere, encouraged to pretend to be a prince it worked in 1487 and all henry the seventh does is repeat exactly the same tactic in the 1490s with perkin warbeck they create this identity for him as a, a boy from tournai but perkin proves to be a much longer threat and i think there is so much compelling evidence and it, it's things like perkin is accepted by lots of the crowned heads of europe so King of France, King of Scotland. Now, undoubtedly, they want to cause problem for England. Mm. Absolutely, they do. He He's in conversation with Queen Isabella of Castile. Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, is probably Perkin's biggest supporter in the 1490s. He calls him Prince Richard, calls him Richard of England. He dresses him in the Yorkist Murray and Blue, has the royal arms of England paraded around with Perkin and kind of funds his, his life in exile. And even after Perkin is captured, you know, Maximilian doesn't abandon him. He continues to call him Richard. And and people will say, you know, these crowned heads, they just want to cause problems for Henry VII and destabilise his throne. But I don't think they would ever do this. There aren't examples of any other monarch trying to do this in history because there is an inherent danger in saying that you can pluck a boy off the streets and say he's a king. That's, kings are born into it. They want you to believe that they have a divine right to be where they are. You can't just be anybody and be a king. Mm. So for the king of France to to be willing to say, this boy from the streets of Tournai is the rightful king of England, he simply sets a precedent that someone will do that to him. Mm. Next time it will be, this boy from the streets of Southampton is the rightful king of France. They would have absolutely no interest in creating that situation and that problem for themselves. So their willingness to recognise Perkin, for me, is far more instructive than people normally believe it to be. Yeah, nice, nice point. He'd, on that. he'd also, I, I'd never thought of it like that. He'd also have to physically do it. He'd have to have the accent, the manners, the etiquette, the knowledge of being a nobleman, a nobleman's son that you don't just pick up. From yeah, and this, this is part of the interesting thing about it. So, for example, he spends time with Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy. So, this is the sister of Richard the mm. Third and Edward IV, who is the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy. And again, people say Margaret just wants to cause trouble for Henry VII, and undoubtedly she does. She doesn't like him. He's kicked her family off the throne. But what Margaret really wants is to restore the legitimate House of York. And she doesn't achieve that by placing a boy from France yeah. on the throne of England. She's got loads of other nephews, the de la Poles that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, They will go into rebellion in the early 1500s. They're clearly willing to press their own claim when the time comes. So she has options. It's not like she couldn't find somebody to do this. And Margaret, she has a sketch done of Perkin while he's with her, which bears a remarkable resemblance to the portraiture of Edward IV. 
know, they very clearly look the same. And you could say maybe they were they would draw it to look the same, but no one ever says Perkin doesn't look like this sketch. And he spends time around so many English people, Irish people, Scottish people, who never ever question his accent. So in Perkin's confession when he's captured, and I think this is a document that's written for him that he's tortured into signing, but he he says in his his confession that he arrives in Ireland at the age of about 17. Everyone thinks he looks like the younger of the princes in the tower, so they force him to learn English. So at the age of 17, he's forced to learn English and then speaks it with such a perfect hmm. command and such a perfect accent to the point as well where where modern work on his handwriting in letters that he wrote says he has a strong English style of writing. So we're supposed to believe that at 17, he immediately changed his first language with a perfect immaculate accent, changed his way of writing to match an English way, and no one ever caught him out. He spends time around English people, and as I say, Scots and Irish people who would have very clearly picked up a, a French twang to an accent. And yeah. nobody ever questions the fact that this is an Englishman. Mm. Uh, one of the things that always got me with, uh, with with Perkin Warbeck as well, it's like, say, in the Lamnet Symbol Affair, they pluck this boy out of the Tower of London and say, look, we've had him. He, he can't be the guy that you've grown care. We've had, we've had him all along. There you go. Was Perkin Warbeck, they practically beat to death uh, and then executed. It's always struck me as really having to make a point there. Yeah, and I think part of the point, so one of the, the important things about the princes in the tower, Edward V is raised in Ludlow from the age of about two. So not particularly well known around court, but Richard, Duke of York, is raised at court with his sisters, with his mother. So people know him. There's a guy called Robert Clifford who who eventually will abandon Perkin and come back to England. But this guy was, uh, he, he fought in the joust at Richard, Duke of York's wedding you know, when he was a child. He grew up around this boy. And he stands in the streets of Calais and says, this boy is the real Richard, Duke of York. So people who knew Richard, Duke of York tell us that Perkin was real, but yet we still doubt it. And and part of the reason I think, so there are several sources that talk about him being beaten. Bernard André is one of them. Another is de Valera, the Spanish ambassador, who says that Perkin is disfigured and that he fears he won't live too much longer. Quite often the, the passage is translated as saying Perkin was changed, but the Spanish word that de Puebla uses is, is disfigurada, which is just Spanish for disfigured. So he says Perkin is disfigured by the time he arrives in London and he isn't expected to live too long. Clearly he's being tortured and that torture is carrying on. And if we think about that sketch, if he looks a lot like Edward IV and looks a lot like Richard, Duke of York, who grew up in London around court, Henry VII's court is populated by people who, who were involved in Edward IV's court. They're still there. They would recognise him. How do you stop them recognising him? You beat him to a pulp until no one can recognise him. And, you know, there's a, a herald that talks about him having no luster in his left eye and being, you know, unattractive, which is, seems to me like a sly way of also saying he's disfigured. And he's perhaps been beaten around the face so much that they've destroyed one of his eyes. Yeah. You know, and, and this is the circumstances under which he gives that confession. It's extracted under torture. Yeah. Yeah, we we wouldn't count that now. We shouldn't count that then. 
Okay, now, the next question coming up, I think we've pretty much answered, which is what role do political motivations and power struggles in the 15th century play? Uh, And I mean, all I'd say very quickly on that question is just that the Wars of the Roses creates this idea that it's a well-known time of violence, of cutthroatness and and people changing allegiances all of the time. It's it's not necessarily that clean uh, and certain, and it doesn't mean that everybody during that period behaved that way. (laughs) We tend to tar everyone with the same brush of ruthless violence during the Wars of the Roses, and that's not necessarily the mm. case. Yeah, the, the, Pastor, the Pastons are just there in Norfolk getting on with it. <laughs> getting on with yes. suing everyone. Oh, yeah, there aren't enough Plantagenets yeah. left to, for them to get that violent yes. anymore. Su- suing everyone and writing endless letters, but there we go. Um, so just to digress back onto the actual topic at hand, um, so this is quite a big question. It's more for the people who are not medievalists um but what are the sort of major controversies and debates amongst historians of this period about the fate of the two princes what's what's the main argument about what happened to them i think the main argument is whether i ought to be called an idiot or a fool for the things that i say um (laughs) because i mean you won't really find an a traditional established historian who will agree with anything that i say Mm. i'm very much out here on my own <laughs> but there are a lot of you know, like, unestablished historians that agree with you well, i've yeah, got the books I, I of several so. of them yeah um but i think you know and that's why i try to make my point using written evidence hmm. and and you know there are there is more evidence that people believe for what i say and as i say i think i think some of the reaction to that historic royal palace signage shows how entrenched the traditional view of Richard III and the princes in the tower is simply saying that there's no evidence he killed them has caused utter outrage. You know, people think that's a disgusting position for historic royal palaces to take. And I think that just shows how, how entrenched that view is. And I think lots of the, I don't think there is enough debate amongst historians actually about the fate of the princes in the tower. I think that's part of the problem. It's very much taken in traditional circles as a settled matter that shouldn't be it's a can of worms you don't need to open because everybody mm. solved it and it's done. But I think, you know, people will always say, well, Richard just had no choice in 1483. You know, he, he deposed a king and what do you do with a deposed king? You kill them. Mm. Yeah. Closed book, move on. That's what his brother did. Yes and I, but well, I think yes it, and no, but you see where I'm going. Yeah, there. <laughs> but I think it's slightly, slightly more nuanced mm. than that and slightly more open to, to some discussion then that is so if we look at deposed kings previously edward the second we get that story of the red hot poker at barclay which is just rubbish you know the red hot poker part at least is absolute mm. rubbish but there are lots of theories ian mortimer has done a whole load of really good work on whether edward the second really died when history says he did richard the second is deposed in 1399 and a man is executed in 14 14- uh, for, about fourteen, fifteen, I think this guy is executed for saying, "Well, Richard's still alive." You know, I know where he is, and there is lots of stories that Richard is across the border in Scotland that he's still alive, and and you know, you get the situation where people are willing to die for saying that they believe he's still around. Henry the Sixth, you know, the Yorkists put out the story that he dies of pure melancholy, which is often just laughed at and dismissed, mm. and 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 I can I definitely see why. But I think you have to allow that this is a guy who is 50 years old, has a 20-year history of of serious mental health issues, a 20-year history of serious health problems, who's been a prisoner for the best part of a decade 
in the in the hands of his enemies who have not looked after him. When he emerges in 1470 at the re-adeption, there, there are discussions about how bedraggled he is and how unkingly he looks. He hasn't been cared for. So is it beyond the realms of belief that uh, an ill, mentally ill, elderly man who hasn't been looked after for 10 years, hears news that his son's died, his only child is dead, and that that doesn't cause him enough shock to to cause him to to faint for to have a heart mm. attack you know anything like that i don't know i just think it's i think it definitely is one of those things that feels too convenient for the yorkist to be true but mm. i don't know that that necessarily makes it a lie and so you can you can create a situation in which actually those three deposed kings none of them were murdered so when richard deposes his nephew he doesn't immediately think well, i've just got to kill him there's no other way to deal with this and we can look at, there's a template for this. So when Richard II is deposed in 1399, Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke, isn't considered by most people to be his heir, doesn't have any children. His heirs are considered to be the Mortimer family. There's lots of discussion about Edward III's entail of the throne and, and how what that meant for succession. But in mm-hmm. the minds of most of the public, Edmund Mortimer in 1399 would have been the heir to Richard II and his younger brother Roger after him. But they're kind of seven and five years old at this point. Their father died the previous year. They're in no position to press their claim. So what Henry IV does is he takes them into custody. Loose custody. Everyone knows where they are. A couple of years later, they're abducted. And the plan is to get Edmund to Wales, make him king and depose Henry IV. They're recaptured quite quickly. And what Henry does then is he puts them into much tighter custody. Nobody knows where they are. They're moved around a fair bit. They end up in the household of the Prince of Wales, the future Henry V, and when he becomes king, he almost immediately releases them. So Edmund becomes the fifth Earl of March, one of the most wealthy and powerful noblemen in the, the land. And he is utterly loyal to the House of Lancaster for the rest of his life. He exposes the mm. Southampton plot against Henry in 1415. And he dies in 1425 in Ireland, serving as lieutenant of Ireland. So something about the way they were raised made them Just loyal. for reference, that's the Southampton plot that would have put him on the throne. Am I right in thinking... Yeah, so the Southampton plot was, it's actually Richard III and Edward IV's granddad who had a plan to put Edmund on mm. the throne again. And Edmund goes to Henry V and says, I don't want this. And it, and it leads to the execution of Richard yeah. and Edward's grandfather, Richard of Conisbury. Yeah, he, he grasses. He exposes yeah. plots aimed at putting him on the throne. Yeah, that's how loyal. He crashes his own bus. That's how like, loyal you know. he is. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want it. And the thing about Edmund and Roger Mortimer is that they're Richard III's great uncles. So this is family history. It's not particularly distant family history. It's about a man who has deposed a king and has two young children who some people think have a better claim to the throne than him and they might want to champion it. And it doesn't involve murder. And more to the point, it works. If I'm Richard III in 1483, there's my template for what to do. Unless you believe he desperately wants to kill children and he doesn't look for another way out of it, there's his template. It works. The part that doesn't work is when everyone knows where they are and they're, they're targets for abduction. So if I'm Richard, I skip that part and I go straight to the bit where they're held, where nobody knows where they are and mm-hmm. pla- their, you know, their locations are kept secret and they're raised in the hope that they will be loyal. If they want to rebel as adults, then you'll have to deal with that. But you can execute or kill them on a battlefield as politically active adults without the same kind of terror for your soul and your reputation that comes with just murdering innocent children yeah 
yeah, killing them as 20-year-old rebels is better for you politically and better for your soul than it is to smother these two kids. Yeah, I mean, look what look what Henry VII does with Edward, Earl mm. of Warwick. He keeps him in prison for almost his entire life until 1499 when he, for my mind, fabricates this idea that Warwick wants to escape from the Tower of London as a pretext to execute him as a grown mm. man. He's literally been kept there like a fatted calf because you just don't kill children. Yep, not even Henry VII. Okay. Not even Henry VII, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> and if he didn't do it, surely nobody Clearly. would. Everyone knows. Nathan Amin will tell you he's the most awful man in yeah, history. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. So skating around the obvious kind of hole, what what gaps in our knowledge and understanding do we do we still have? Obviously we don't know what happened, but if we're trying to come to you know a conclusion and educated guess, what what are we missing that we absolutely have to know? I think what what I think most people who come to this are missing is simply an open mind. On both sides of the argument, there are there are a group of people who say there is absolutely no way that Richard did it. There are a group of people who say Richard definitely did it. And I would say you're both wrong. Mm. What we're lacking is an open mind, a bit of nuance, and a willingness to to look at those sources with fresh eyes, without the conclusion of Shakespeare, without picturing Shakespeare's Richard III in our heads, telling us he's going to murder his nephews. We are definitely... The hole that is more difficult to fill is is simply the documentary evidence around this. So whilst I can't conclusively prove the things that I believe and, and that I've been talking about, and I will openly say I can't conclusively prove them, I don't think you can conclusively prove the other side of the argument either. And I don't know that we can ever get around that lack of definitive source material. So we know Henry VII, when he comes to the throne, has a, a fairly substantial purge of documentation. You know, the, the Act of Parliament that made Edward IV's children illegitimate, he has it repealed, unread, so it's not read in the House of Parliament as it should be when it's repealed. And he orders all copies of it returned on pain of imprisonment and has them all burned. So there's a copy that survives in the Crowland Abbey amongst the library there and the one in the parliament rolls at the tower of london but every other copy is destroyed and that one at crowland only survives because it wasn't returned when it mm. should have been uh, we know that after the lambert simnel affair he has all of the records of simnel's coronation and of the 1487 irish parliament burned and destroyed so whatever that said about who that boy was we can't see ever again because he destroyed it uh, we know we know that evidence of the bigamy story is examined in London in 1483 because the sources tell us that evidence was presented and examined and accepted. We don't have that evidence. And I would presume that that is part of the documentation that's destroyed as well, because Henry can't have evidence that his wife is illegitimate. So I think we've probably almost permanently lost most of the conclusive evidence that we might have had for what happened in 1483. And, and all that that does is leave this big black hole which sucks in all kinds of views mm-hmm. and arguments and beliefs. And I think I think you just have to approach the story of the princes in the tower with saying, I don't know, but this is what I think. And I think people just need to stop getting so entrenched in their view on both sides of the argument because you don't solve anything by polarising it even further. Oh, you should stand for... You should be Prime Minister with an <laughs> attitude like that. Go <laughs> grief. 
So to wrap things up, um, are there any current ongoing projects to explore more information about the princes, who they were, what happened to them, uh, discussing the controversy of those two skeletons they found in the tower about 300 years ago, those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, there are lots, there is lots going on. So in in that absence of documentary evidence, there is still lots of things that we can look at and investigate and and try to, to get around. And obviously, scientific advancements mean that things like those bones in the urn at Westminster Abbey become more interesting because we can do carbon dating Mm -hmm. now we could potentially do DNA testing assuming that there's any viable DNA in there which is far from certain Hmm. we know those remains were were dug up chucked on a rubbish pile for a few days put in a box for a few years then put in that urn they were got out in 1933 by people who weren't wearing kind of hazmat suits or or latex gloves so they've been handled who knows how many times over the centuries. So there may not be viable DNA in there. The question is whether the science is at the point to tell us who they mm-hmm. are. But, you know, that would answer... it would, and, and examining those remains would never answer all of our questions, but it may answer some of our questions. There are... So there are other theories that I talk about in the book. So there's a, uh, an amateur art historian called Jack Leslaw had this theory about the, the younger of the prince in the tower surviving and living under the name John Clement. And there's so much... This is like a Da Vinci Code thing. So for some people, it's completely mad. But I am <laughs> totally obsessed with it. I, I have been for years and years and years. Jack passed away um, a fair while ago now, but I, I've been in touch with his family who still hold a lot of his work and are still keen to see it progressed. And it revolves around a guy who is buried under the high altar at Mecklen Cathedral. The precise position of his tomb is lost, but you know we could find it, and we could potentially try and do DNA testing on him if we could justify doing that. So there are interesting things that we could do to shut it down. Unfortunately, Perkin Warbeck's remains were were buried in a church that was bombed during the Blitz, so we don't have Perkin's remains to try and do mm-hmm. DNA testing on or anything like that. But there are a few other identities that have been suggested. For, for the princes in the tower living on, and we may be able to follow some of those strands. But I, I think, and I think most interestingly, so Philippa Langley has, because, you know, finding a king under a car park isn't enough for Philippa, she started this thing called the Missing Princes Project, which is about trying to find any information they can about the princes in the tower and, and kind of treating them as missing persons rather than definite murder victims in 1483. And I think it's a fascinating project because it, it's sort of, enrolls citizen historians it kind of democratizes archival research there are people all around this country and all around the continent going into archives looking at stuff that hasn't been looked at for hundreds of years and there's the potential that something will crop up in some of that documentation there may be a smoking gun you know on on either side of the argument somewhere in all of that and i know they're due to report their first kind of five-year findings at the end of this year so you know, everyone hold your breath and wait to see what comes out of that because it could be something really interesting that, that changes the argument again. Mm. Mm. Oh, I think if it, if it was ever proved that Richard killed them, that's that's going to kill Philippa Langley. I'm not sure she could take that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you know, for a lot of Ricardians, we uh, we have this weird thing where we devote a lot of time to thinking about Richard III. And I would never say that he didn't murder his nephews because it's possible. I don't think he did. I don't think it's likely. For me, if there was absolute concrete proof that he did it, I guess I'd have to reassess my view of the man. Hmm. You know, there are lots of things that that wouldn't change. The laws that he put in in his parliament were absolutely incredible 
and in many ways centuries ahead of their time. But how do you ever get over the fact that he killed his, yes. his nephews? That is the I probably couldn't. But I, sim- I just don't believe that he did. Well, thank you very much for that, Matt. <laughs> thank you. That was that was epic rage about, like we say, de- divisive subject. And Carl and I will be now exiting social media for at least a I'm, year. I'm glad I'm going to. Uh, but no, that was really enjoyable. Everyone get on Twitter, get on History Rage's Twitter feed and tell them what you think happened to the princes in the yeah, tower. why not? And see if we can get them to switch their phones. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why yeah, not? Come, come at us, bros. You can't have bad engagement, Kelly. <laughs> We're just the platform. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you very much. Do you feel better for that? I, I feel it's been very cathartic Excellent. to say <laughs> some of those things that I can't say it, within other walls it's <laughs> yeah. a place to, to vent my rage and vent my spleen so thank you very very much for having me you are welcome well ladies and gentlemen if you'd like to know more then you can and should start by reading the excellent book The Survival of the Princes in the Tower and we'll have links to that in the History of Eggs bookshop uh, and you can also follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Lewis Author uh, the Richard Third Society at rsociety underscore iii and you can find Gone Medieval at historyhit.com. And all of those are worth your time. But once again, Matt, thank you very much for bringing 500 years of, and an entire army of rage with you. Thank you very, very much for having me. We will now leave you in peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this and haven't left already, then why not join the Angry Mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.